Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of She Existed, the podcast wherein I, Ashlyn Romagnoli, share a little snack-sized introduction to a woman of history and or legend. Um, for those of you who are not watching on the video, uh, probably important to know that I am enjoying a very tasty, expertly made martini um, along with this particular episode, so don't mind me as we continue. Mm-hmm. Gin martini. I mean, that's the only correct answer, but, you know, uh, in case you were wondering. Plymouth Gin. So, have you ever wondered why our theme song, called The Magical Lake in the Wonderland by Xylote, for she existed, is so damn peppy? Like, it is magical, right? Beyond just liking the song um, and being happy to pay for licensing for it, because pay your artists... I felt like I needed something upbeat, something uh, happy sounding, because so often when I'm researching for this podcast, I'm somewhere in this emotional zone of like total awe and enraged fury, and that Venn diagram intersection is pretty weird. This week, I am leaning towards that last one, enraged fury, and I will tell you why. If you have heard of Enhedwana, I will eat a hat, my beloved Kindle, the antique writing desk that I look at but don't use my Google Chromebook that I use exclusively for writing that looks like a computer designed by unicorns who enjoy baking cupcakes in their spare time. I will eat all of those things if you have heard of her, because uh, I never had heard a peep about this woman, and that is really weird to me for reasons that I will get to. But Ashlyn, I hear you saying, or maybe you don't remember my name and it's just but unnecessarily intense feminist and lover of history whose podcast I've randomly discovered. Isn't that the purpose of this podcast in the first place? To shed light on little known, well, to you, you troglodyte, women of history and or legend. And it is true that like some of the fury that I'm feeling right now, I feel more or less with every episode because, well, we should know about all of these women. Women and girls should be taught about influence. Fuck that. No, not women and girls. Everyone, everyone should be taught about influential women of history. And not just because of some, I don't know, charitable attempt to rewrite the past so the girls don't feel so bad, that there really aren't that many female names in history. Like, no, I feel like that is also completely insane. Like, that is pandering. We don't want to do that. I'm not trying to rewrite history. Um, I'm trying to elevate pieces of history that have often been purposefully obscured. Women actually have been a massively influential part of human history. I mean, how could we not be? We are half of the population and we live longer. But when you have a culture of patriarchy that's ingrained, you either in the moment or even centuries later uh, construct narratives that fit your specific worldview, even if you're applying it to things way, 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 way in the past we end up reinforcing our own extremely patriarchal viewpoint, so it all just turns into a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then if you try to dredge up some record of women's achievements, you get called a radical feminist and kind of ignored because people claim that you're trying to rewrite history to suit some fake narrative that you're just reaching for because you really want there to have been cool women in the past. But I have news for you. That is not what historians are trying to do. Uh, That is what has already been done for most of human history. All of history is just picking a narrative and going with it. All of it. And I am not saying that women had it great back in the day. Um, Obviously, patriarchal issues have been around for so long, and they are so baked in that we practically don't even see them half the time. 
But it is really, really important to know that history was written by the victors. We are told a certain narrative for specific reasons. So exploring that avenue further, like that, that's not negating history. It's uncovering more. It's learning more. So I wrote this episode because during my research for last week's episode on Kubaba, which was absolutely fascinating to write, I went down all kinds of rabbit holes, I accidentally stumbled across Enheduanna. By accidentally, I literally, I mean that I randomly clicked on a random king from the Sumerian king list that I had never heard of, and he happened to have a daughter listed. And I, like... I was asked recently, like, how I come up with the people for this, and this is kind of how. Um, I always just randomly click on female names, female-sounding names, in case they might have enough material about them to be an episode and be interesting, especially if I've never heard of them before. So you want to know who Enhedwana is. I mean, we're... Oh my god, we're so many minutes into this, the recording of this podcast already, um, and I haven't even gotten to that. So Enhedwana, in addition to many other accomplishments and intrigues that we will get to later is the world's first named author ever. Can we let that just sink in for a moment? She is the very first writer that we know of. And she was a woman. And not only that, but we have a fuck ton of her work and it's really, really good. So maybe this explains a little bit of my martini-fueled rage because... How is Enheduanna not a part of basic curriculum when you are learning about history or literature, whatever? I mean, I know crappy Western history classes already try to downplay the role of the Middle East in history, but for fuck's sake, how do you not mention, either in history class or writing class or literature class or literally any fucking class, the first author in world history? is Especially given that women are crazy underrepresented historically. Ugh! Like, even in the Wikipedia articles about Enheduanna's father and brother, she is barely mentioned, and without even noting her role as, you know, the first known author of human history in the former, and not mentioned at all in the latter. Cool, right? Like, that makes sense. And you know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, women have actually had a lot of firsts historically. Tale of the Genji? The first novel ever written, a woman, Murasaki Shikibu. The first abstract paintings ever made, also a woman, Hilma of Klint. Yeah, no, not Kandinsky. Hilma of Klint, Google it. Arguably the first long-format narrative film ever made, you guessed it, Alice Guy Blanchet. I'm not good at French, but that that's her name. It continues to boggle my mind that women are continually seen as being outliers to, you know, the progression of culture. I mean, these specific women are outliers in the sense that generally their cultures were oppressive against women. They didn't want women to have agency and power. I totally acknowledge these things, but they are not outliers in the sense that we usually use that term. Like, like, yes, women think things, feel things, and want to express things. And a lot of women weren't given that opportunity, but this doesn't mean that there just weren't women who were capable of doing all of the amazing things that we credit men with all the time. So that is a very long explanation. This is probably the longest intro I've ever done. Um, But that is why I chose a happy theme song to trick you into listening to my ranting and raving. Because as you can tell, I do get pretty worked up over this shit. 
Even though I should just be used to it by now, somehow it still just feels like a knife in my gut every damn time. Woo! Okay, that felt pretty good to get out. So let's talk about this badass poet priestess princess. I know, right? And then you can fly, my pretties, fly and spread the word of Enhedwana and all of these other neglected, amazing women from history. So if you listened to last week's episode about Kubaba, you may remember the Sumerian King List, an ancient document that kept a record of Sumer's many, many kings. One such that I touched on briefly was Sargon of Akkad, who was super interesting, historically speaking, as he united the kingdoms of Sumer and Akkad uh, to create a vast empire that included huge swaths of Mesopotamia and beyond. I, however, mentioned him because he is listed as being the son of a gardener, which I thought at the time was super interesting. I mean, I still think that it's interesting. But his wife, or at least the most important lady with whom he had children, was called Queen Teshlotum, and they had several children together, probably including Enhedwana. And um, uh, that name actually is likely an honorific name that means Head Priestess Ornament of Heaven, um, and also her brother Rimush, and a few other kids too. Uh, We don't know that for sure, we just kind of assume because uh, it all kind of fits together in the record. She was born in around uh, 2285 BCE, so a super long time ago, but thanks to her poetry, we do have some details about her life. Sargon, called Sargon the Great, appointed her his N, which was the ceremonial title for a high priest or priestess linked to the patron god or goddess of whatever city-state we're currently discussing. In Enhedwana's case, the god would be Nana, and later the goddess Inanna, and the city would be Ur, which I first encountered in my teen years thanks to a special exhibit all about the royal game of Ur, one of the earliest known board games. Um, I think I think it was at the British Museum. I'm not sure. But I actually bought a copy of the game in the gift shop. Oh, God, I love museum gift shops. And forced my family to play it, and it was actually super fun. The theory is that the royal game of Ur either evolved into or was displaced by early versions of backgammon. Yeah, that is how old we're talking. It competed with proto-backgammon, which as it stands is a game that is pretty much only played in nursing homes. So very, very, very old game. But anyway, maybe Anne had wanna played the royal game, maybe not. But what she did do in her years as N was write up a storm. We have evidence of around 42 different hymns dedicated to the goddess Inanna, typically referred to as the Sumerian temple hymns when we take them all together, as well as a couple of longer format poems, including a personal devotion to Inanna that appears to include a number of autobiographical anecdotes that give us some idea of the course of her life, including a political intrigue wherein she was banished from her role as N, only to be reinstated later on. As I mentioned, um, at first it seems that Enhedwana was devoted to Nana, who is a Mesopotamian god of the moon. And I found that really interesting because often moon deities are goddesses, but in this case, Nana, god of the moon. Um, But she shifted her allegiance to Inanna, who is called the queen of heaven and the goddess of sex, beauty, war, and justice, after an attempted coup on Enhedwana's power. Some asshole, whose name was Lugalane, apparently turned a temple, quote, whose attractions were inexhaustible, whose beauty was endless, into a destroyed temple. So, er, destroyed the temple. That could be a metaphor, like maybe he just metaphorically destroyed the temple, but either way, he was coming after her job. And one source I read also interpreted Enhedwana's phrase, quote, he entered before me as if he was a partner, 
as an attempted sexual assault on Enhedwana herself. So that's possible. Who knows? But yeah, Lugalane, basically crappy, schemy dude who ends up getting Enhedwana kicked out of her position. And yet, Nana, who she is, this god of the moon that she is devoted to at this point in time, does not heed Enhedwana's calls for justice. Indeed, Enhedwana describes her own downfall, saying that, quote, I have exhausted my life strength. He made me walk through the thorn bushes of the mountains. He stripped me of the rightful crown of the N priestess. So, disgraced and stripped of her title and seemingly her power as well, Enhedwana begins to pray to Inanna instead. So Inanna is a really fascinating Sumerian goddess, fierce and unyielding with a huge number of myths surrounding her. She's often conflated with the Akkadian Ishtar, who is particularly beloved by the Assyrians, and uh, she's connected to an early form of the goddess Aphrodite. So, as you know, if you've been listening for a while, a lot of these older deities have a lot of overlap um, and flex for <laughs> who can worship them and why and what they call them. It is believed that Inanna's worship involved a number of sexual religious rites, whoop, and some of her priests, who are called the Gala, identified as neither male nor female. Her symbols included the eight-pointed star and the lion, which is yet another interesting connection, actually, to uh, Sibylle, who keeps coming up, our magna mater, Sibylle, um, who actually rode a chariot drawn by lionesses. So, for some reason, lions very connected to these ancient goddess figures. So, Enhedwana begins revering Inanna, and then things start to go right for her. She is restored to her role as En, and proclaims that since, quote, Nana has not yet spoken out, it has made Inanna greater, my lady. You shall become the greatest. And indeed, it seems as though Inanna's popularity exploded during Sargon's reign and after, making Inanna one of the most prominent and worshipped deities for a very, very long time. In fact, her cult did not see a serious decline until Christianity gradually supplanted most of the more ancient deities. Her cult was largely gone between the 1st and 6th century AD, although a few small pockets did continue throughout, even as recently as the 18th century. And today, uh, as a goddess, she is worshipped in some contemporary pagan religions, including Wicca. So largely, we think that Inanna's popularity probably was attributable in some sense to these many, many poems that Enhedwana wrote during her course of years as the En. So Enhedwana's role as En then continued after her father's death and through her brother Rimush's reign, and it suggested that she may have even attained a semi-divine type status after her death. Certainly her poetry continued to be highly valued for centuries, as so many copies of it were made that we have a significant amount of it recorded today. She seems to have been responsible for popularizing, if not creating, a, a pantheon of sorts, truly codifying the roles and relationships of various deities of her time into a recognizable body of stories. Paul Kinwachek, I think I'm saying that right, who wrote the super fascinating book Babylon, notes that after her restoration uh, to her powerful seat as the N, quote, she moved into the Giparu at Ur, an extensive and labyrinthine religious complex, containing a temple, quarters for the clergy, dining and kitchen and bathroom areas, as well as a cemetery where N priestesses were buried. Records suggest that offerings continued to be made to these dead priestesses. That one of the most striking artifacts 
physical proof of Enheduanna's existence was found in a later datable to many centuries after her lifetime makes it likely that she in particular was remembered and honored long after the fall of the dynasty that had appointed her to the management of the temple. So that's pretty rad. So like I said, she was hugely influential in um, Inanna's ultimate popularity um, and also to the general uh, mythology of, of her time and the, the gods of her time. So going back to this poetry that she wrote, um, she is the first named author of history that we know of, as I've said. It is possible, maybe even probable, that there were others before her, but what's fascinating is that when she created the temple hymns, she wrote into the text, quote, My king, something has been created that no person had created before, which implies that either the poetry itself or the compilation of poetry in this way was a brand new thing. And yes, like this all super predates Homer, for example, like like super predates. Now, because we can't have nice things, I will note that there are some absolutely exhausting scholars who, you know what, I'm not even going to bother to name because why would I? But they have claimed, and you know, I am committed to bringing you guys as truthful a story as I can tell, so I am going to tell you some pushback on this, um, but I just don't see the, the reason for popularizing this dude's name, because that's what they usually do to women anyway. Um, anyway, this dude claims, and he, he's a prominent dude, right, in his field, but he claims that there is no reason to believe that Enheduanna actually wrote these poems, that she had a male scribe, and he's probably the one who actually wrote them. I shit you not. Yes, yes, someone has, someone argued this. So, you know what? Instead of getting angry about it myself, obviously, I already am, but whatever, I'm just going to quote from these texts that we actually have. So, the primary sources. Quote, I, Enheduanna, will recite a prayer to you. To you, holy Anana, I shall give free vent to my tears like sweet beer. Okay, well, how about this one? You know, in case it was uh, a different Enheduanna, a male one, who wrote that last one. I, Enheduanna, the N priestess, entered my holy jipar in your service. Getting pretty specific there. Uh, we could triple down with, I was high priestess. I, Enheduanna. Okay, and finally, yet another quote. May your heart be calm towards me the brilliant end priestess of Nana. I mean, I love, <laughs> I love that last one. There is no shame in acknowledging your own brilliance. But like, the fact that we have even one scrap that indicates authorship is, uh, is a treasure, considering how long ago this thing was written. But like, this many repetitions? I mean, what else do we need here to, to prove that she wrote these things? Like, I've, I've said it before, and I will say it again, like, generally speaking, just, like, maybe believe women, but also, like, why the actual fuck would we decide to assume that the author of the poems is lying about who she is? What is the actual reason for that? I mean, if we are presuming that this is a culture that's so misogynistic that a woman could not possibly write these poems, why would someone attribute them to a woman? Why would that happen? 
I mean, a lot of times we have some serious projection going on based on our own internalized misogyny. You know, women don't do X, women don't do Y. We are obviously living in the most progressive time now. Uh, (laughs) So therefore it must have been worse back then. Everyone knows, right, that ancient cultures treated women like chattel. Women weren't allowed to do anything interesting, etc., etc. Again, nobody knows. Nobody knows. Nobody knows for sure. I wasn't there. But uh, here's a really fucking cool tidbit from a great article about Enhidwana by the Morgan Library and Museum, which I'm very excited to say, I discovered Googling this, uh, that it's they're going to be hosting an exhibit called She Who Wrote Enhidwana and the Women of Mesopotamia starting in September 2021 through January 2022. Quote, Many of these women took part in economic transactions, oversaw festive banquets, and participated in religious rituals. For instance, a pair of objects shaped like crafting tools record the first woman in history known by name, Kagirgal, who may have been involved in a land sale. Another remarkable work, bearing the earliest known artist's signature, records the donation of an estate on behalf of a woman named Shara Igizi Abzu. So, like, sure, unnamed dude historian who doesn't think Enhedwana wrote her poems. I mean, I can't say beyond a shadow of a doubt that she literally put, you know, reed stylus to clay and wrote each of her poems, because I wasn't there. I mean, certainly, this would not be the only time that a powerful person has exploited the labor of someone under them and taken credit for it. But even if that were the case, the fact that anyone would allow them to be attributed to women anyway says something about how women were perceived in the time, and it ain't all bad. They obviously believed at that point in time that a woman could have written this. So, I'm happy to say, like I said, there is this exhibit coming out in the Morgan Library, so a lot of people are starting to get interested in this kind of thing. Um, So, go forth and Google. Learn more. I encourage you to do so. I'm going to leave you with one of her poems, and um, trust me, it was kind of hard to pick a favorite. Temple Hymn 7. The Kesh Temple of Ninhursag, the lofty high-lying Kesh. In all heaven and earth, you are the form-shaping place, spreading fear like a great poisonous snake. O lady of the mountains, Ninhursag's house, built on a terrifying site. O Kesh, like holy Arata, inside is a womb, dark and deep. Your outside towers over all, imposing one, great lion of the wildlands, stalking the high plains, great mountain, Incantations fixed you in place. Inside, the light is dim. Even moonlight, Nana's light, does not enter. Only Ninter, Lady Birth, makes it beautiful. O house of Kesh, the brick of birth-giving, your temple tower adorned with the lapis lazuli crown, your princess, princess of silence, unfailing great lady of heaven. When she speaks, heaven shakes. Open-mouthed, she roars. Aruru, sister of Enlil, O house of Kesh, has built this house on your radiant site and placed her seat upon your dais. I mean, I just, I love the emotion in her work. The, the metaphor, the beautiful feelings. It is just brilliant. Anyway, here's what you can look up if you so desire. Enhedwana, um, spelled many ways, but here's one. E-N-H-E-D-U-A-N-N-A. Inanna the goddess, I-N-A-N-N-A, Sumer, S-U-M-E-R, Ur, the royal city, 
and board game we were talking about. It's just U R and N E N. That is how you spell uh, the title that N Hedwana occupied for much of her adult life. And again, if you happen to be New York based, don't forget about the Morgan Library's badass sounding exhibit all about her and uh, women like her starting in September. So thanks for listening to this beautiful, ragey podcast. Um, Have a great weekend and ta-ta.